Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. Welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today is Dr. Louise Dunn from New Hope Ministry. Dr. Dunn, welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. It's been a little while since we've had you on, and I'm glad we're able to have you back again now that the COVID virus pandemic is beginning to wind down and people are beginning to go back to work. There's so many transitional issues And there have been transitional issues with your ministry, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before we do, if you would be so kind as to lead us all in a brief word of prayer, I think we would all appreciate it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this uh, opportunity to talk about mental health and talk about some of the things that have uh, occurred during the pandemic and some things that are still happening with a lot of people out there. We want everyone to be blessed by today's show, and uh, Lord, just to uh, help those that are struggling, especially those with depression and anxiety and trauma, and we lift up this time to you and are just praising you today, and we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wow. Thank you. Dr. Dunn, we had you on a, a while back, and the main thing we talked about at that time was that New Hope was the oldest ministry in this building and that you've had a phone line hotline for mental health issues, suicide prevention type things since I think I think it was 1968. That's right. And you have been operating here ever since then. So this is one of the few ministries that was originally established by Dr. Schuler and, and the group that came along, and part of the deal in the selling of the property was that your ministry would stay in the towers. Is that did I remember that correctly? Well, it wasn't really tied to the selling of the property. It was t- tied to the generosity of the diocese, Bishop Van, for one, who really felt that uh, he wanted us to stay in our historic home, and also the Episcopal Episcopal <laughs> vicar. Can't say that right. <laughs> it's okay. uh, Father Christopher Smith, who had uh, gotten to know about New Hope and felt that it would be a really good thing. And since we're central to uh, Orange County, that this would be a good location for us to stay. So they together made that happen for us. This was one of the first ministries, phone ministry of, of emergency contact in the country, wasn't it? Yes, it was the first church hotline uh, that that had ever taken place in America and um, it was a time when there weren't as many prayer lines and weren't that many hotlines to begin with. So this ministry then has been going on, and you're still here in this building where we're broadcasting. We broadcast from the Great Tower of Hope, which is this tall building. If you've ever been to the cathedral, you'll see the beautiful uh, glass Christ Cathedral, and beside it is is a tower that's that's beautiful, that has a big cross on top. There's actually two towers. One's the Campanile that has the, that's kind of the, the tower for the bells. 
The other is the office building that's there, and the big tower on top is the Tower of Hope. This building was built in 68, and yours was, I think, the first ministry to actually become operational in the building itself. Yes, it was all tied together, actually, because uh, Dr. Schuler, uh, three things that he wanted to put together. He wanted to dedicate the Tower of Hope on his birthday. He wanted to uh, open the building, and he wanted to start the New Hope Ministry. He already had uh, put into place uh, volunteers that were trained and ready to go on the phones, and uh, he was he was quite a master of uh, ceremony, I guess you could say, and he had, you'd think about a time when there were no cordless phones, no mobile phones. The switchboard was in the lobby of the Tower of Hope. He had a line run out to a flatbed truck that he was standing on with the microphone, and uh, he had an old dial phone, and he dialed the number of New Hope for the first time. A counselor answered on the other end, and he pronounced that the New Hope hotline was open and the 90-foot cross on top of the building lit at the same time. Oh, that is that is beautiful. <laughs> I don't remember hearing the story about the lighting of the cross at the same time. That is so nice. So that there has been this Ministry of Hope in Orange County operating continuously, really, since 1968. That's right. Now, this last year has been quite a challenge. You're, you've been operating the entire time, but I would have to assume that a number of your volunteers They've been curtailed or, well, let's put it this way. You've got a number of volunteers that are probably have been older for the first part before the vaccine came out. That had to be difficult, keeping enough people on the phones. Did you stay open? We stayed open. Uh, That was the first thing we were deemed to be an essential service, which was a good thing. Of course, the governor made his uh, announcement about shutdown on a Thursday night, which it gave no one really much timing. I came in on Friday morning to find nobody, none of the volunteers <laughs> no. had come in. And that included my over 65-year-old uh, volunteers and my college interns who had also been told they didn't have to finish their internships by the schools. Oh, man. And um, th- that was a challenge indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found myself on the phones quite a bit more often than I ever had as uh, as director. I would think so, because when you're the director, you're also the chief cook and bottle washer if anything goes wrong. So if you're going to man the phones or woman the phones in this case, you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But I told uh, for those of you out there that are familiar with the 211 service, which is a wonderful referral service, you just dial 211 on your phone. They can help you with uh, a lot of social services. I had uh, had contact with them to see if we were open and I told them, I said, all I can do is guarantee 40 hours. Anything beyond that, uh, it's just if somebody decides to come back in on their shift. <laughs> Fortunately, people did start to trickle back in. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to come back uh, a little bit later on in the program to talk about maybe people actually uh, re-volunteering, because I'm assuming that now that we're getting back up and running, you're, you're kind of having to rebuild a little, aren't you? Yes. So let's come back and talk about that in a few minutes. In this first section, I want to make sure that we've had a chance to touch briefly on what the people that you've encountered have been going through. I know you can't talk about um, anything that reveals confidential information, but you've had enough anecdotes, I'm sure, that you can give us an idea of, of what kinds of stresses people have been confronting. What's it been like out there? Well, the first thing, of course, for everybody was, uh, 
having jobs shut down and immediately having financial issues, uh, food shortages, that kind of thing. Um, beyond that, uh, people started to have tremendous anxiety. What's going to happen? Am I going to get my job back? Are we going to open again? Uh, and a lot of fear of the virus itself, uh, especially in the, I'd say, the first six months. Uh, those Those fears were very acute. So when people are dealing with the anxiety of such a shutdown, what are the components that present themselves? I know you as a psychologist, you're listening to symptoms. You're listening and trying to find out what's going on with this person in order to try to to get some basic help to them. Because you're kind of a triage group. Mm -hmm. You can't do long-term care. You can refer out. But your job is to try to understand what's coming at you at the in, on the phone line right. what are the components you're you're finding or you were finding say in those first six months what were the strands you'd have in most of your phone calls well the first thing is uh what what the emotions uh they're they're feeling our our job is to identify those uh reflect those so that they uh they feel heard they feel understood and those emotions coming in uh depression anxiety fear Absolutely. Uh, feeling out of control, which is, is something none of us like dealing with. Uh, for people that already had some underlying conditions, their conditions would, would become much larger, bigger. And also, uh, we, we had uh, less access to doctors. A lot of people uh, don't realize that many times the uh, prescriptions that people are getting for psychological things are actually coming from treating doctors, regular GPs. And uh, almost immediately, the overwhelm of the medical system made the ability to access regular doctors very difficult. So uh, those those were the, the first things that uh, hit really hard. Yeah, and a number of those medications will require a regular visit to the doctor once every few months sometimes in order to be reauthorized to be able to get the prescriptions that had to be difficult for a number of people it sounds like you probably had a number of people who were without their prescriptions too then yeah and it it, it was difficult to uh, uh, get in to see therapists uh, it took a while before things like zoom came on the scene which later uh, they helped somewhat being able to do a lot more through technology but in the beginning um, everybody was was just trying to figure it out and, um, you know, where do you start? How do you do this? And uh, we were kind of swamped with calls and understaffed with uh, counselors. And so, you know, it just uh, the calls were coming back to back. When they write the history of the the battle of the pandemic, there are going to be people like you in your office that are going to be described because people don't think about these things, I think, a lot that... When you declare a shutdown, you, you not only are shutting down uh, non-essential services, but a lot of people who are volunteers for essential services are essentially bumped, or at least in their mind they're bumped. It, it's got to be very difficult, especially if you now have people who you were relying on who they themselves are now fearful that they may end up contracting the virus by getting out. There was an awful lot of that, wasn't there? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, so so much fear about that, and the other the other issue for me was our volunteers all have to go through a training program. It's it's a short program. 
uh, runs about six weeks. Normally I would do that in the classroom and would have 10 to 15 uh, students in the classroom. Well, because of the social distancing and because of the amount of disinfecting and that kind of thing, our classrooms were shut down. And what that left me with was my office, which basically at the best of times seats two people plus me, but I could not keep people far enough apart. So I was essentially teaching a 32-hour course one-on-one instead of teaching it to multiple people. What that meant was um, hours upon hours of training just to get a handful of people onto the phones. And uh, that has been true right up until um, the current time. And uh, things are starting to open now, thank God. Okay, so just to to get a review handle on this, for the last year and a half or so, (laughs) you have had your ability to train people curtailed tremendously. You've had a number of your volunteers not volunteering anymore for a number of very good reasons, but nevertheless leaving you high and dry. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how you were able to then uh, make go forward. And then I want to talk about a, a little more about where people are at right now because we're at a transition period. We're talking with Dr. Louise Dunn, who is the director of New Hope Ministry here in the Tower of Hope at Christ Cathedral Campus. When we come back, we're going to talk to her a little bit more about what's happening now. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and we will be right back. Here's a word of reflection from Christ Cathedral organist and host of Sounds from the Sanctuary, David Ball. In St. Louis, there used to be these sort of clubs for Eucharistic adoration. It was really people watching the church all night. Each person would take an hour with the Blessed Sacrament exposed. My parents, we we used to do this a couple times. And so I remember going to St. Gabriel, the Archangel in South St. Louis. It would be one in the morning and you'd knock on the door and the one person who was scheduled for that hour would come out, look through a little peephole, let you in. And then you'd lock yourself in the church for an hour of stillness and meditation and prayer and whatever. And as a kid, it was interesting. It just introduced the idea of stillness to me at a young age. For more, come find us at spiritfilledmedia.org. That's spiritfilledmedia.org. Spirit-Filled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Dr. Louise Dunn, who is the director for New Hope Ministry here in the Tower of Hope on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. And the ministry, New Hope Ministry, has been here since 1968. So this is one of the ministries that goes all the way back to the, the time of Robert Schuler's first founding of this campus, and in fact, was the first ministry to open its doors well, open its phone lines to the people of Southern California in order to bring Christ's healing hand to those who were in need psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually, uh, those who were in need and had nowhere else to turn. New Hope Ministries has been here doing that that entire time and is still doing it. And Dr. Dunn has been involved with this ministry for most of that time. You weren't there at the very beginning, no, I'm not old enough. No, to have been that. <laughs> but you've been there for quite some time. Yeah, 20 years. Wow. 
So we now have gone through the last year and a half of, of all this difficulty, not only for people who are going through this, but for your ministry, trying to help take care of people who are going through this, because a lot of your volunteers are were the original group that were most fearful of getting it, the people who are over 65. Mm-hmm. Prior to the vaccination, that was... Well, I, I know, for example, I have an 85-year-old mother, and we hermetically sealed her up. She was forbidden to leave the house without me being there, and I made sure that I didn't touch anybody. So we did that for almost a year before we were able to get her a vaccine, and I'm sure that a lot of people who used to volunteer for you weren't able to do that. So we were talking with you about the difficulties of that. That's transitioning, so you're you're able now to have people come back. You're able to have people become more involved. I'm a little curious, though. This is a transition period for the people who are dealing with the virus out there as well. Yes. Their shops are opening back up. Their businesses are opening back up. They've been home sitting at a table in pajamas for the last year and a half. This is going to be a real transition back. What are you seeing out there right now? I think one of the groups that's... Uh affected our parents. Uh, We had a lot of uh, employees out there who either lost their jobs or left their jobs to take care of their children, especially to help them with uh, schooling through uh, Zoom and and those kinds of things. Some of those folks chose not to come back and they were financially able to. Some chose that uh, they didn't want to come back, but uh, some wanted to come back and haven't been able to. So a lot of financial issues continue. A um, lot of concern about just getting back into the norm. That let, transition's been hard. Let me ask a question about that. I want to back up for a moment to something you just said. The schools have been closed down primarily. Now, I know we've got a number of the Catholic schools that have been open, but most of the schools have been closed. That A, a, a lot of people, I don't think, understand how tremendously... Uh, how much of a tremendous impact that's been on, on the families. Because if you've got young children at home, young meaning anyone is un, under the age of about 12, you need to have someone at home with them. And if you're planning on having them actually pay attention to what's going on on Zoom for their classes, you got to kind of sit on them. Uh, you have to be able to monitor your your children while they're doing this. That takes a full-time parent to be able to do that. And we come from a society where, frankly, either single parents or both parents work. And now all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of people who are not able to work because the kids are not back in class. And that has been going on. How much anxiety has that produced? And I'm thinking now, not only for the parents, and that seems to be a given, but how much are you seeing with kids that are swallowing this and dealing with it, watching their parents go through it? It has to be hard on the children as well. The one benefit for the children is how much they miss their own uh, classmates and are excited to be back. But, um, you know, it's uh, the uncertainty. There's no question that children pick up the emotions of their parents. So if their parents are stressed or they're feeling depressed or they're not acting like their their usual selves, children become very anxious over that. And uh, that can that can cause a lot of mental stress for them. So for the children, this time being away is not just a matter of being bored or not liking Zoom. It's also dealing with mom and dad who are stressed, who don't have money, and they're trying not to let the kids know, but the kids know. 
and the the kids are dealing with all of that while they're on Zoom and while they're trying to to learn. This shutdown has not been a good experience for the kids. No, no, for the for the kids during during the height of the pandemic, they couldn't go out and play. They couldn't uh, uh, even see the neighbor kids, um, and uh, couldn't even see their their cousins. That uh, that had a huge effect on them because you know you think about children; they're very tactile. They're always hugging and uh, kissing each other and kissing their grandparents. I remember and kissing this their video of this two-year-old running her tongue up this pole <laughs> with the yeah. beep saying, "I don't think she quite gets the, the pandemic yeah, idea yeah. yet." <laughs> I mean, touching is kind of everything, and uh, and not having access to their grandparents and their aunts and uncles uh, very difficult too because. A lot of times in in close families, they're so used to to having that. Uh, I knew um, people who had been the caregivers who were grandparents, and then all of a sudden they were being told, no, Mom, you can't can't come. You have to stay home. You can't be with this child. And so it was really, it was hard on everybody. And uh, now that, you know, it's, it's exciting to be able to get together with family members and actually see their faces and that kind of thing. But thing though that um that that i'm seeing now we're getting fewer calls but the calls are more intense and they're they're longer and the people uh, they're they're having deeper issues now what kinds of issues are you are you talking about you said it's more intense yeah the trauma that people went through it's it doesn't go away when things change back and it just adds more pressure to it's like they kind of figured out the pandemic um schedule and now they've got to figure into something new and uh for a lot of them you know especially if anybody had some of those situations to begin with they might have had mild depression or you know some degree of anxiety but now it seems to be higher as they're trying to uh, again deal with a whole bunch of different issues the other thing too is that as much as the vaccines have been wonderful and it's um the pandemic seems to be waning uh you hear about the variants you hear about the people that haven't been vaccinated you hear about the people who um although it's a small percentage got vaccinated but got the virus and so people are very confused do i wear my mask do i not wear my mask where is it that i that i'm okay to be without it there's still stores that have the signs up um so there's a lot of confusion that adds to that stress there are a number of people as well who have had real losses. I hate to, to differentiate between emotional losses and physical losses, but I'm looking out at the, the the Shrine of the Roses down here where we've got all these different roses just for those who died in Orange County from the coronavirus. There are many, many families who've lost an uncle or a grandparent or a parent yeah. or or several and they've had to do that without funerals for the most part especially the first part of the pandemic before yeah. the vaccine they've had to do that without being able to say goodbye in a lot of the cases there were people who they'd go into the doctor and you just wouldn't see them until you got a call mm. that said your loved one has passed away absolutely how traumatic that must be and Oh, do you, yes. Do you still receive calls regarding that? Yes. And there's there's two things. Uh, what you're saying about, you know, not being able to say goodbye. I was at a funeral Saturday and realized, um, despite the fact I've known 
several people who have died in the last 15 months. That was the first funeral that I was able to attend. And that is really hard on the family when you can't um, gather. It's so important to be able to to gather and talk to each other and and, uh, support each other. And um, that didn't happen for a lot of families. What happens a lot of times is that uh, brain tends to defer things. And by that, I mean, at the moment that you lose the person, of course, you're grieving and you're sad. But um, when things that normally take place that would alleviate some of that, we tend to not so much process the grief, but to push it down. The thing about grief is that it doesn't go away. And sooner or later, it's going to come back up. And that hits people and sometimes even harder because uh, it almost seems like the wrong time to be grieving. People will call and they'll say, well, I don't know why I'm crying so hard over losing my mom. It's been a year and a half since she died. And, you know, it's like it's more intense to them now than it was at the time. Well, at the time, they were juggling all these other things. They had so many uh, issues to take care of, and um, in- including financial issues, including emotional issues, helping the children to get through losses. And um, so a lot of it's coming to surface now. We have other things that have gone on as well. I have my youngest daughter was in her senior year at at high school when Mm. they shut down for two weeks to flatten the curve. And, of course, everyone kind of knew what was going to happen. So the band director called his people and says, take everything out of your locker. Mm. That was their goodbye. That was their graduation. That was their prom. That was everything. Yeah. There was a young man who was killed in an accident um, who had been part of that band a couple weeks ago. And so there was a funeral that was held. It's the first funeral, I think, that was held for anybody. Ironically, it wasn't about COVID. Mm. This was an automobile accident. But it struck me as I'm watching this afterwards. I went with her to the funeral, and all these kids haven't seen each other for a year and a half. Mm. And they're outside, and this is the first time they've been able to talk to each other in a year and a half. And the emotions that were going through there were just tremendous. And this then has to be reflected back up to the parents as well. Yeah. So you've got this whole system thing going yeah. on. No, it's true. And, and the isolation uh, kept people from being able to to share that new hope helped in that somewhat. People would be able to call us and cry on the phone and that kind of thing. But for the most part, people were trying to hold it together and um, all those emotions um it it was hard on the parents for the kids. It was hard on the kids. It was hard on the elders. It was it was a terrible time. And I think part of what is is gets his people off guard is that as things are getting better, you expect you're going to feel better. It's like, well, you know, why am I crying now? Things are opening up. I'm able to see people again. I'm able to talk to people. But it's because none of the processing got done. And when it comes to, to an emotion like grief, processing is really important. You need people to do that with. We're talking with Dr. Louise Dunn, who is the director for New Hope Ministry here in Garden Grove at the at the Tower of Hope here on the campus of Christ Cathedral. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about what where we're going from here into the future and what it's like to be trained as someone to come online Because, frankly, uh, you could use some more volunteers. We'll talk about this. (laughs) We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and we will be right back.
you heard Deacon Steve lately? From the very beginning of our country, the Declaration of Independence, we talked about a right to life. The first thing that we have in the preamble, you know, the Declaration of Independence is we have the right to life. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? One. The most American thing we can do is supporting life. Catch Empowered by the Spirit with Deacon Steve Greco. Sundays at 12 noon, right here on Relevant Radio. We learn so many extraordinary insights each and every day on Spirit-Filled Radio. Listen to these words from Sister Kit Gray, a recent guest of Father Christopher Smith on the Cathedral Square Radio Show, talking about the year of St. Joseph. Pope Francis's reflection on the quality of Joseph, again, of being this worker in the background. And he talks about our renewed appreciation for people who do the everyday keep the place running kinds of jobs. He says, how many people daily exercise patience and offer hope. Doctors, nurses, storekeepers, supermarket workers, cleaning personnel, caregivers, transport workers, men and women working to provide essential services and public safety. His point is, we can look to St. Joseph. And we can see in these people some of the virtues of St. Joseph. That's so beautiful and so timely. Yeah. Because many of those professions that Francis mentioned are not ones that we would normally highlight. No. And yet they are essential and needed. And to, in some ways, kind of give them an increased dignity on one hand and also a patron to look toward. For more, come find us at spiritfilledmedia.org. Spirit-Filled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope. With me today is Dr. Louise Dunn from New Hope Ministry, who is also here in the Tower of Hope on the campus of Christ Cathedral. And this ministry has been here since 1968. And it was one of the original founding ministries. In fact, the first founding ministry that was here in this tower that Reverend Schuler put together when he was putting this campus together. And it has been providing a lifeline, literally, for many people throughout the decades. And it still is. And it's gone through this last year and a half uh, with a great deal of difficulty, but nevertheless still staying on the air, so to speak. People manning the phones to be able to talk to people, and bring a little hope of Christ to people in some very shattered lives. Sometimes, desperately so, sometimes reaching out just to have another person to talk to when the pandemic created loneliness and people not able to speak. You had a whole bunch going on back then. We're now transitioning, though. What do you see the issues are going to be that are coming up? What are you preparing for? Well, right now preparing for training more people. Uh, We are still shorthanded, and uh, the uh, training is six weeks long, and it's what is called an active listening model. That is an actual psychological concept, active listening, and yet it is um, something that anybody who is compassionate, kind, patient, and caring can learn. So let me back up for just a second. So you don't have to have a degree in psychology or even a, a, a background, really, in pastoral care or counseling? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. But sometimes people that have been professionals, it's harder for them to go through the training <laughs> because 
It, we don't care if you're a psychologist or a social worker or anything else. You still have to go through the training. And um, it's active listening is about hearing the person through their emotions, being able to connect with those emotions, being able to, because we're a prayer ministry as well, you need to be able to pray with the callers. We offer prayer on every call. Uh, you need to be able to understand grief, to, to be with uh, the grieving. But the key things that a person has, uh, that's kind of innate to their nature. A lot of times our volunteers, their friends will say, why are you doing that? That's so hard. Why would you want to go sit with hurting people? So we have to have that nature uh, where people seem to seek you out to tell you things uh, because you're just one of those people that stops and listens. That's the biggest part. And uh, during the pandemic, couldn't do a whole lot of training. So now you mentioned that, that the, yeah. it made it impossible to do anything, but really one or two on one, which yeah. takes up all of your time since you have to have qualified people to be able to do the trainings and you're the chief qualified person. So you're going to yeah. always do some of the trainings. Yeah, I do all of them, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah so, that was a challenge. Let me get some nuts and bolts on this then. It's six weeks to do. What does it cost to enter your program to do this? It is free of charge. Okay, so there's not going to be any monetary outlay, just your time, effort, some reading, some listening, and driving down here to be part of the training. Correct. And then they're going to go for six weeks, and when they're done, they're going to be qualified to be able to talk to people on the phone and yet most of the time they're not alone on that. They've got people they can talk to. How does that work when they come out of the program? Well, the first thing, uh, they actually get two sessions on the phones after the uh, classroom training. The first one is four hours listening to a trained counselor taking calls. So they see what that's like, how that's handled. And then the second session is four hours where they're actually answering the calls with a trainer sitting and listening to every call. And that way they get the feedback. And uh, by the time they've done four hours on the phone, usually they're feeling somewhat comfortable and uh, uh, they're, they're closely monitored the first 90 days to see how they're doing. And after that, uh, usually people are doing really well and uh, they just go on as regular counselors. And you're trying to actually man shifts that go 24 hours. Yes. You're here even at 4 o'clock in the morning. And 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and if there are any night owls out there, uh, <laughs> anybody that, that can't sleep at night and wishes they had something to do between midnight and 4 a.m., we always need people on those shifts. Okay, so as those of you who go to regular adoration in the midnight hours, if you've got some time that you'd like to dedicate to doing a different kind of service, uh, here's another opportunity for you. So let's go back. Let's talk a little bit about what they would encounter when they go through this training. What's it like to go through your training? It's a combination of, of lecture and discussion, essentially going through uh, six topics, and one of which is, is prayer. We, we know most of the people who come to us, they know how to pray individually, but to pray with a stranger on the phone is a, is a whole different thing. And the same thing, I mean, people know how to grieve, but... Uh, you know, I, I always start in the grief class and say, what does everyone say when they're at a funeral? And they go up to talk to the family member. And they look at me and I say, you know. And they say, sorry for your loss. And I said, yeah. 
And about the time the 15th person says that, uh, the grieving person, they appreciate the acknowledgement, but how is that helping the person? So how do you help a grieving person beyond that you're sorry? How do you? You reflect their feeling. You walk up to the person and say, my heart's breaking with you because I know how sad you are that you've lost your mom. Um, It is that connection of empathy which touches down in the heart. And uh, a lot of times you're going to end up with the person hugging you or or tears going down their face. But that is what they need is to be able to take that deep emotion that they're trying to hold back and trying to keep it together and to actually be able to express it. So when they're going through your training, what are the major topics you talk about? Because, my goodness, you must have everything under the sun come up. How do you... How do you narrow it down to the basics? We focus on on what the uh, the topic is, which is prayer, grief. We have a class that's on suicide assessment and intervention, which is very important. People will bring up uh, examples in the class. That's why I like the live class because you know they'll raise their hand and and give an example many times, and then we talk about that. Um, I use a lot of examples of from calls, you know, w- without uh, revealing right. details. But, um, you know, I'll say, well, there was a caller once who, and especially on, on some of the more difficult calls, to really get prepared, they really have to hear the phone calls. That's, that's the only way, because then they have a million questions coming back. So this is kind of then a mixture of basic introduction to psychological health and psychological dis-ease, people who are struggling. And it's also some basic triage. How do you, how do you intervene in a way that would give cause for pause and perhaps some opening for ministry, opening for healing. Right. And Uh, then some practical application where you do role playing and, and, uh, and it is, it is about the practical application because we're peer counselors that term basically means you're not a professional counselor, you're not held to that standard, uh, you're, you're not going to be a licensed person, you are a volunteer, but you are trained to connect with the person, and presence is really important. Uh, it's, it's amazing how many times we answer the phone and the person will say, thank you for taking my call, thank you for being there. Uh, so just showing up and being there, um, there's a old expression, one of our uh, pastors used to say 90% of caring is showing up, and that's really a good part of it. The other part is a lot of its nature. There are people that are just very empathetic. Uh, we don't give advice, so that's that's a place that I train on a do not. That is so wise. People don't understand this, but yeah. it's usually a good idea not to give advice. You can ask questions yeah. and help people clarify, yeah. but clarifying and giving advice are two very different things. Yeah, and we can we can give information, but we want to make sure it's something that the person wants. And difference between that, like I, I mentioned, two one one service, we refer to them a lot, and we'll say, "Have you heard of two one one?" And a lot of times people haven't. We ex- we tell them what it is, and then uh, we'll not say, "Well, okay, since you hang up, you should call two one one." We say, uh, "Okay, now that you know what two one one is, if it's something that'll be valuable to you, you have it." So that's information, and uh, uh, a lot of times uh, people like to tell people what to do, 
most of us don't want to be told what to do. So it's one thing to be the person saying, hey, you should do this. And it's another thing being the person who's hearing, you should hear this. One of the things I think a lot of people appreciate isn't so much being told what to do, but what are my options? Can you help me? I can't see the forest for the trees. I'm so emotionally confused. What are my real options? Yeah, that's a that's it's a good thing to bring up because one of the things that we talk about in the class, uh, one of the portions of active listening is summarizing. But the summarizing is not just to go back over it. Part of it is that we want to be correct because sometimes we get it wrong. We say your two-year-old daughter and your four-year-old son, and we say your four-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. People get upset, and so we want to make sure we get it right. But the other thing is when we summarize, we're also – helping to prioritize because as we're listening we can kind of get an idea of what you know the person's dealing with five or six things well what seems to be the most urgent and when we we do that we'll keep things usually to three things you know well three things that seem to be standing out the first one is this the second that and that helps the person to be able to get a start because when people are overwhelmed that's the hardest thing just seems like everything is at an equal level and we can break it down for them. If, if we put one on the list that is, they don't think is as big as the other things that they're talking about, they can switch that out. They can say, well, I'm not so worried about the finances. My cousin's going to help me out. I'm more worried about, you know, that finding housing or whatever the problem is. So that's summarizing that you're training your, your people how to do really is a clarification process for the, the, the caller as well to help them clarify their own needs to know what their priorities really are, what their priority issues are. Yes, exactly that. So by the time they're done with this training program, no one's expecting anyone to be a psychologist coming out. These are people who are able, though, to do some basic, as you put, peer counseling. There's some basic triage work, and they can they can get people to calm a little bit and to count to 10 and to then clarify what their issues are before yeah. they do something drastic wrong or or exactly. not get any help. Well, there's a, there's an old uh, uh, saying in, in psychology that the uh, presenting issue is not the issue. And part of our job is to help the person to refine to the core issue. People will start out sometimes with things that are maybe the first thing that's on their mind. Um Oh, this morning the neighbor was making a lot of noise. Well, that's not why they called us. Sometimes it's the safest thing, too. Yeah, yeah. And as we say, well, okay, tell me more about that and and what else is going on, little by little they gain more trust and they bring up more of the core issue. And that helps us to refine what they're needing. And so if uh, I see this as an entryway a lot of times to professional counseling because they they come in thinking, well, what good is talking going to do? And then they talk to us and they feel better and they say, well, maybe, you know, maybe going to a therapist is a good idea. It's one of your options. But when they come into the therapist, instead of starting up in the clouds, they can get to the core. We've got one more session to go through. And in doing so, I want to shift just a little bit more and talk about how people can really get involved. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Dr. Louise Dunn from New Hope Ministry. And when we come back, we're going to talk about you might be able to make a real difference in their lives, and it doesn't involve money.
need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Bishop Robert Barron thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Do you have a favorite Bible verse? Maybe one you recite from memory to help get you through the day. Check out this insight from hosts Ralph Linsmeyer and Mark Prather from the Finding Your Way radio show with his recent guest, Dan Burke, from the Avila Institute for Spiritual Formation. Is there some key Bible verse that you have on your mind that is such a profound awakening that you want to share, especially right now? One comes to mind, James chapter 4, around verse 7. It says, resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And the message is this. Jesus came to set the captives free. We're not supposed to live in anxiety and fear. Right now, most Christians, Catholic, live in anxiety and fear. People are just dying in isolation in their homes, committing suicide. The fear in our country is a fear that reveals a lack of faith in God and a real lack of connection to who he is and how powerful he is and how great he is and how kind he is and how much he wants to redeem us. And we need to know that perfect love casts out all fear. And we need to get to this place where we recognize that when we're afraid, when we're living in fear and anxiety, we are not in the will of God and something's broken. It's like having a dashboard light in the car that says you you need to fix your engine. It's not normal to be afraid of anything but God in terms of fear and awe of God. Even Jesus said, don't fear those who can't affect your eternal destiny. Those are a few passages that are just really top of mind for me now that I hope people take seriously. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. And we as a church are obsessed with letting our hearts be troubled instead of obsessed with what it means to be free in Christ so that we're not troubled. For more, come find us at spiritfilledmedia.org. Spirit-Filled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is Dr. Louise Dunn from New Hope Ministry. And before I go any further, I want to pause for just a moment. I want to thank you so very, very much for coming in and sharing with us today But also, thank you very much for your vocation, for your choice to be a helper. It has become, I think, for a lot of people, far more appreciated to notice the people who really are out there helping. These last year year and a half has been very traumatic for many. And so thank you, doctor, for being in the profession you're in and empowering this very important ministry. And thank you for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. We are talking about the transition that is happening now, both in our society and with this ministry, in that our society is now kind of, especially here in Southern California, we're reopening back up. We've had masks coming down in most places and doors opening up and people going back to work, and we're all one happy family. Not quite, (laughs) because... (laughs) Transitions are always stressful. One of the definitions for stress is change. The amount of change you've got is the amount of stress you've got. And if that's the case, we are all going to go through a great deal of stress. We've been talking about how New Hope Ministry has been struggling through 
some of the times of austerity. The austerity hasn't been so much the money. It's been the volunteers, because a lot of your volunteers were, frankly, a lot of retired people who couldn't come out during, especially the first part of the of the pandemic. And now you're trying to deal with getting your classrooms back so you can train people. You're kind of behind on the numbers of volunteers. We need some people to volunteer. How can they do that? We were talking a little about the training they go through. How can they do that? Why would they want to do that? I'm sure you've had people tell you, wow, this is far more fulfilling than I thought. Sell us a little bit, doctor. Okay. <laughs> the, the starting place is to get a hold of me. And that can be done uh, either by email or by uh, telephone. Let's have the email first. Okay. What's your email? It's ldunn, D-U-N-N, at newhopenow.org. So that's L, as in just the letter L, and then no spaces, L and D-U-N-N, Dunn at newhopenow.org. All right. If they go to Dunn at newhopenow.org, they can find what? That is um, actually my email. That's your email address. What I need to know is uh, a little bit about the person. The first thing is geographic because right now, a person has to come in to our Garden Grove location. Uh, I sometimes get uh, uh, emails that are that are from people northern California or you know down by the border. (laughs) And uh, right now, we don't have that capacity. We're hoping to have that in the not too distant future. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, think about availability, and we begin with an orientation meeting, which is is a one-on-one meeting. We talk about uh, what is interesting to you about New Hope. We talk a little bit more about what's expected at New Hope, and um, if that meeting goes well and you still want to go forward, then I schedule you for the training. Go right into that. And the training uh, will last, actually, it's more like eight weeks. Uh, Sometimes we can overlap the telephone training where you listen to calls with the six weeks. But it's, you know, a six-week classroom and then two times coming in on your schedule. The classroom training is always preset, uh, but the one-on-one training is between your schedule and mine. So the classroom training you're going to have, do you have already, because um, I know that you were looking at having to find classroom space that would allow you to have all this different space you needed yeah. for the pandemic. You don't quite need as much of that anymore. So have you scheduled new sessions? They haven't opened the classrooms just yet, okay. but they opened the campus here last week. So I'm hopeful that's coming in a week or so. I would say probably going to start class in late August. And if anybody really wants to get going, I will do the one-on-one training with oh, you wow. at this time. That can be started any time. I always have that open for my interns, and I uh, don't usually get too many interns in the summer, so we can, we can do that. <laughs> okay, so people that are interested in going through this, they would contact you at ldunnatnewhopenow.org. Send out an email that basically expresses their interest and that they're in the Southern California area, so Riverside can be tough, but you can still make it down the 91. Coming up from northern San Diego might work still. Coming down from Los Angeles County can still work still, but you've got to be able to come to Garden Grove. Right. Okay. And then you can do one-on-one training for people who are really want to get going now. You could actually use a couple more volunteers soon. Yes. So you'd be willing to go ahead and work with some people on that, but you are going to schedule a class 
a regular class probably in August coming up. And you'll send back an email to them that will let them know kind of what the schedule is likely to be and some options for when they can come in to talk to you one-on-one. Right. And just to know if you're a professional, you still have to take the class. Um, <laughs> You've said that a couple of times. Yep. Why do I have the feeling that you probably had some argument from a couple uh, of PhDs? Yeah, yeah. I, I get a lot of people <laughs> think they're just going to come sit down on the phone and start. But being on a telephone hotline is different. I know from experience, uh, cut my teeth, started out working in psych inpatient and let me tell you, um, as a therapist, you have information sitting in front of you, the person's name, what's going on, if there's a diagnosis, all kinds of things. And at a hotline, you sit there, the phone rings. If they block their caller ID, you know nothing about the person. And you're starting with a blank slate. And that is um, it's exciting. It's challenging. It's not uh, not scary, but it's something to get used to, you know. How old do you have to be in order to start this training? 18. Just 18. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you can be any age at the upper limit so long as you can still physically get here. Yeah. Our oldest trainee started at 92. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so this is open to anybody who really wants to come in. Yeah. So have you had people that have stayed with it for a long time then? Yeah. We have a person who's been there since 1968. And she's still you have someone who started with it the first year. Wow. Yeah, she was young at the time, uh, young mom, and she's still with us. And uh, so uh, we we in the past, we had a lot of people who were with us 25, 30 years. Now, now we have maybe about five or six people who are who are 20 plus. Wow. Yeah. So tell me, what do people say about this? The ones who make it to the program and the ones who say they actually kind of got this was fun. I, I take it you have some people say yeah. that. People, what, no, what, no one wants yeah, to yeah. take joy in other people's no, problems. No. But there is a joy in being able to help people. It's a great feeling. I mean, the best feeling in the world is when you're wrapping up a phone call and the person says, "I feel better," or they say, "Thank you." Uh, you know, this was this was really helpful. That you're just going to be on cloud nine, and that right. does happen a lot. It isn't all serious and. Not everyone's got a razor blade to the wrist. Right. And the counselors are wonderful. They're the sweetest people in the world. So you have you have good peers that are that are there. But um also people come out of the, the training and come out of being with New Hope and almost everyone says, I've learned so much, I've grown, I'm I'm just uh, a a better person or I have a, a different perspective on life. You know, even people that uh, maybe don't like it as much as, as others will say, I'm really glad I did this. And every once in a while we get a person like that that says, you know, this is really a good fit for me, but I'm really glad I did this because I've I've seen myself differently. Wow. So for those of you who are listening somewhere in Southern California, and if you're listening to this broadcast, you're in Southern California, you can make a difference in people's lives if you have the desire to do so. And a little bit of patience to be able to listen to people and to go through a six-week training program. But the training program is free, and it is not designed for people who have their master's degrees in anything. If 18-year-olds can take it, and having taught 18-year-olds, this has to be at a fairly basic level to start with. And it's not so much about becoming an expert in the academics of psychological care. It's about learning how to empathetically listen to people and help them clarify their lives a little bit. 
Wow. This has been a great hour. I I am so glad that we ran into each other again and were able to talk a little bit because I had been wondering what it's been like to go through this last year and a half. And it sounds like you've had a very full plate. For those of you who missed the first couple of sections from our broadcast today, go back and listen to the podcast. You'll be glad you did. But you also have given us a chance to be able to talk to people. Some people may know other people who just really would be good at this. If people are interested in finding out more information, again, they should send an email to you, Dr. Louise Dunn, and the email is ldunn, L-D-U-N-N, ldunn at newhopenow, newhopenow, and it's .org, not .com or .net, it's .org. And they can go ahead and send L to ldunn at newhope.org, and they can find out how to be able to help people and bring a little of Christ's healing ministry to the people uh, who are in need of it. Dr. Dunn, thank you so very much for being here with us again. Would you please lead us in a word of prayer? Absolutely. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for all the caring people that uh, might consider coming to a program like New Hope. Uh, There is, as you know, Lord, a lot of need in the mental health uh, arena. A lot of people have never seen anybody or talk to anybody when they're going through trauma or going through stress and depression. But uh, everyone can call New Hope for any issue. And Lord, we just pray that you expand our service, that you bring more people, that you, not not just in our program, but across our country, uh, have more caring people who get involved and see that mental health is not uh, a they thing, it's a we thing. We all have mental health needs, and especially after this pandemic, there's a lot that people have to sort out. And I just pray that uh, uh, you're just going to open those things up and um, also pray that you're going to bring greater peace to our nation, which has been uh, really it's been traumatized, but also uh, a lot of violence going on. So, Lord, for your peace, for your caring for your love. We are so grateful, and we thank you so much in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today has been Dr. Louise Dunn from New Hope Ministry, which is one of the first hotlines for mental health in the country, uh, and the first one here at the Tower of Hope from 1968 on. If you would like more information on how to volunteer, you can find that at ldun at newhopenow.org. And if you would like to refer this to anybody else to listen to, you can go to the OCCatholic.com and go to the radio tab where you can then download uh, a copy of this podcast off of Orange County Catholic Radio, the site. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I have a question for you before we leave, Dr. Dunn. If someone wanted to call the hotline, what's that number? Oh, <laughs> it spells New Hope, uh, 714 New Hope, which is 639. I actually always have to look at my phone <laughs> New to see Hope. the numbers. So it's 714 New Hope. New Hope, yeah. And that will get you to the hotline if for some reason you need that. If you want to volunteer, it's ldunn at newhopenow.org. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and we will see you again next week.